Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Joe, uh, when I mention God, what, what do you imagine in your head? What do you see? What's the vision that comes to mind? I have to be honest and say it's not a great answer, but it is God from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, you know, so it uh-huh. is actually an incredibly, an incredibly literal depiction of like an old man with a beard wearing a crown, sitting in a cloud, and and saying something angry at people down on the ground. Uh, yes. Now that that's probably not the the full picture of God in my head, but that was the very first thing that came to mind. And it might be because you specifically asked me to picture God, which I don't normally do when I think about the concept. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like I, I have a similar situation going on, you know, where if, if you just say, all right, think about God, picture God right now, uh, you know, kind mm-hmm. of a gozer moment where you have to just, just come up with a mental image. My mind does instantly go to this um, old sky daddy image. I think of the Sistine Chapel. Mm-hmm. I think of, you know, various images of Zeus, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and certainly things like, um, like like the Monty Python God are very much in that vein. Um, there's also a sort of a Sistine Chapel, Chapel God gag that uh, Stephen Colbert does on his show where like God appears on the ceiling of the theater and, and speaks to him. Um, mm-hmm. So th- those are the images that are kind of initially hardwired into my brain, uh, though it's interesting because, you know, growing up uh, in, a, in a Protestant church, th- those were not images that we were ever presented with. It's not like mm-hmm. that was the illustration in the Bible or on the walls of the church. That's not what they were trying to inundate us with. But we were exposed to it at some point outside of the church and then that's just what sticks, and that's what remains, uh, unless, you know, obviously, like you, if I'm dealing with a more specific example of God or deeper think, uh, you know, thoughts about the nature of God, I can go mm. in any number of directions. But that initial gut response, uh, that, that initial mental image is the old Sky Daddy. Can I tell you the second image that came to my mind after Monty Python and the Holy Grail? And it was like, I don't know what this is from, but it is basically a a, a very poorly 3D animated kind of late 90s CGI face of like a lady with red eyes in a computer background. Very lawnmower <laughs> man. I don't yeah. know why that, but th- th- that's in there too. Yeah, I mean, that is kind of, that's kind of Gozerian as well, right? Because she okay, has big yeah. eyes. Lots of corners in the cheeks and the forehead. Yeah, yeah. I'd say that I probably, if I'm, like, my my post-gut image, I probably go into, like, a, a much more sort of psychedelic kind of zone, an abstract zone, and I uh-huh. think of things that are that are certainly not anthropomorphic, and I try to think of things that are just, like, geometrically based. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, that initial initial mental image is always going to be the Sky Daddy, and I guess it's just stuck there. I don't guess, I guess it's just going to remain there uh, for the rest of my life. Yeah, you can't escape what gets put there in childhood. Uh, But I guess this should be a good indication that for this episode and for the next episode as well, we're going to be talking about the idea of representation of the divine in the history of of the religions of the world. Uh, Specifically, we're going to be talking about the concept of aniconism. Yes, aniconism, discussing and iconic images. Uh, so uh, the icon in there, uh, in that word, of course, is referring to like the icon uh, that is uh, like the center of focus in religious ceremony, personal worship, that sort of thing. Right. So what is an aniconic religion or an aniconic cult? If something is aniconic, 
then it is symbolic or suggestive rather than a literal representation. It's not designed as a likeness. It's not an idol. It is not an anthropomorphic representation. It is not a humanoid. Uh, It is the opposite of that. Yeah, so this is one of those subjects where actually a lot of the interest uh, can be found in trying to figure out what the definition of aniconic should be. It's one of those yeah. things where like, just trying to define it actually raises a lot of really interesting questions about the subject matter itself. Um, and I, I found a really good overview paper dealing with this question of how to define the concept aniconic or aniconicity uh, that was written by a Yale University art historian named Millet Gaifman. And it was published in the journal Religion in 2017. Actually, this specific issue of the journal Religion uh, is a themed issue that was all about aniconism. And, it go- uh, and this paper goes significantly into the problem of how scholars have offered different and sometimes incommensurate definitions of these terms over the years. Uh, but th- this paper is the introductory essay to that themed issue of the journal religion. And I think we're actually going to cite several other papers from that same issue over the course of these episodes. So anyway, th- this article is called uh, Aniconism, Definitions, Examples, and Comparative Perspectives. Again, this is from the journal Religion in 2017, and it's by Millet Gaifman. And uh, so the short, simple definition of aniconism given at the beginning of this article is that it is the demarcation of divine presence without a figural representation. Now, I'll get more into the details of that as we go on, but I thought it might be helpful to start with just an example, a concrete example. Uh, And this one is cited in Gaifman's paper. So what she looks at is a Cypriot copper coin created during the Roman Empire, roughly uh, 75 to 76 CE. So this would have been during the reign of Emperor Vespasian. And there's an image on the coin. I've got... uh, for you to look at here, Rob, that is definitely not a human form. It is some kind of geometrical thing. It looks like there's maybe kind of a building or shrine of some kind. And then in the middle of the building or shrine, there is just this shape that's not a human. It's just a kind of like tapering or sort of triangular conical shape. And the evidence from the archaeological and historical context makes clear that this coin depicts an object that was worshipped at the shrine of the goddess Aphrodite in Paphos, which uh, which was a city in, in Cyprus that was sometimes believed to be the home and the birthplace of the goddess Aphrodite. Now, I think we can agree that this image on the coin does not depict the same kind of Aphrodite that you find in a lot of other Roman art. Uh, Aphrodite, of course, was the goddess of love and beauty, And uh, she's often shown in human form as a beautiful woman, often like reclining nude or posing gracefully, as in you might find, uh, you you know, uh, representations of her in a bunch of frescoes from Pompeii that you may have seen. Yeah, yeah. The the artistic depictions we're accustomed to very much inform, I think, in many of us anyway, that that gut instinct uh, image uh, that comes to mind when we think of the, the name Aphrodite. Right. And in these frescoes from Pompeii, for example, Aphrodite is not only depicted in human form, I I would say probably that she is aggressively humanoid, aggressively Mm -hmm. embodied in that her human-shaped body is a major expression of her meaning as a divine presence. You know, as the goddess of love and beauty, she is supposed to represent beauty. So you might always expect Aphrodite's presence to be indicated by a painting or a statue of a humanoid female form that was thought, at least by the artist, to be beautiful. 
But apparently that was not always the case. The object of worship at the cult center for the Cypriot cult of Aphrodite and Paphos looks more like a weird cone. It's Aphrodite in her Dalek form. Uh, yes. the, you almost want to give her an epithet. Remember, we talked about the Roman epithets, the different versions of God. So you got, you know, Jupiter Pluvius or Jupiter whatever, Jupiter who brings rain. This is sort of Aphrodite Dalekus. Yeah, it, it's almost as if like this is the God in its true form that has arrived. And people mm-hmm. are like, whoa, we, we don't know what to make of this. We don't, we don't understand what you're trying to lay out here. And then the God realizes, oh, I need to take on a humanoid form that communicates at a base level with these humans what I represent. I'm going to have to speak to them through physical appearance and body language and facial expressions and pose and all Mm. of this other just sort of innate communication stuff as opposed to taking on my true form of the weirdly topped cone. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, if they saw the cone form, it would drive them mad. They, You know, we've got to <laughs> represent ourselves. I mean, I, I I want to be very clear. I'm not saying I think that was actually their uh, their their theology. Uh, there's no indication of that. But yeah, my, my mind goes to the same place. Yeah. And part, I mean, part of that is, yeah, we, there's this long uh, history at this point in like weird fiction and, and, you know, science fiction and horror where you have the God whose true form, you know, is just ineffable or it is too monstrous to behold. And mm-hmm. the weird thing is those traditions, they do get into this, maybe accidentally, they get into this idea of an iconism, you know, this idea of, of like, well, can you can you show what that real God is? Uh, oh, no, no, it's, it's too horrible. We have to have some some other thing stand. In. Right. Pay no attention to the cone behind the curtain. Yeah. Um, uh, but so the Roman historian Tacitus actually describes the shrine in Paphos, and he tells us that the Latin quote is simulacrum dei non effigy humana, meaning the image of the goddess was not in human form. And then to quote Gaifman, additionally, he noted that the deity was represented by a circular mass that is broader at the base and rises like a turning post to a small circumference at the top. And it looks like this is the same thing that's depicted on this coin here. And so Gaifman writes that all evidence suggests that what the cult of Aphrodite and Paphos worshipped was a conical stone. Hmm. And this is actually not even particularly unusual in its historical context. Apparently, at many sanctuaries and cult centers uh, in first century Cyprus, rituals appear to have been focused around some kind of large stone. You would have a cult center. It might be a cult center identified with a named god that elsewhere would be represented often in a statue or a painting as having a human form. But here, it's represented by some kind of big rock. Mm. And this raises all kinds of interesting questions about, uh, you know, when we want to understand the religion of, of these ancient people. Uh, so I want to read a, a paragraph here from, from Gaifman that gets into these questions. Quote, The information we can learn about the Cypriot cult of Aphrodite is illuminating, yet it also illustrates a fundamental challenge for our assessment of an aniconic cult. Even if we can identify an example of an aniconic object, we may not be able to establish its significance in the eyes of worshippers. In the example of the Cypriot cult of Aphrodite in Paphos, we cannot know how participants in the rites at the site perceived the conical stone. Did pilgrims to Paphos see the stone as an embodiment of the deity? Did they hold it to be more venerable than the more familiar figural statues of the goddess of love? Like Tacitus, we only have an outside perspective. Baffled by the choice of object for the sanctuary's primary focus, we are reminded of the Roman historian's assertion, set ratio in obscure, quote, 
but the reason is obscure. Uh, so yeah, we, we're left with all these questions. I mean, there there is no conclusive explanation for what the people who went to this cult center in Paphos thought this conical stone meant. It's clear that it somehow represented the presence of Aphrodite, but yeah, did they think this is Aphrodite's true form? Did they think that it it indicated some quality of Aphrodite? Did they think this is just what we have here? This is the closest we could get to the form of Aphrodite? And to be clear, it seems that they also used other images of Aphrodite as well, right? Well, there were other images of Aphrodite like throughout the Roman Empire, but I, I don't know about at this specific cult center. At this okay. cult center, this might have been all they had. It's not clear. So, yeah, that does raise a number of interesting questions. Yeah, like is this just – is is this to a certain extent the best they could do? Was this the uh, – you know, or was this a, a deliberate aesthetic choice based on various like theological concepts? Uh, this is going to be an interesting question for us to keep in our mind as we, we look at different um, – and iconic traditions and um, and values in different cultures. Yeah, and uh, to the point of some of the, the difficulties in in the job of uh, you know studying comparative religions, Gaifman also emphasizes an important point that I'd like to talk about. Uh, she writes this near the beginning of her essay: "Quote: What can the historian of religion gain from considering in tandem traditions such as the worship of trees in modern India, which we'll get into later in this episode?" the dead pillar of Osiris, and the biblical prohibitions on depicting the God of the Israelites. Examining together geographically and chronologically divergent religious practices is fraught with methodological pitfalls and intellectual challenges. At the very least, this exercise risks implying that all phenomena clustered under a single heading have a single meaning. And that's a very good point, mm-hmm. because I, I love the study of comparative religions. I think it's it's great to compare different religions to each other and understand their, their similarities and their differences. But I think it's also important while you're doing that um, to follow the standard guiding principles of empirical science, even when you're studying something like a complex social phenomenon like art and religion. Uh, and th- those principles would be things like of course, correlation does not necessarily imply causation. You can't assume that because two different religious traditions share a similar feature that those features have the same underlying cause. Yeah, like like for instance, it would be very tempting to, in just broad strokes, to say something like, "Well, uh, religions or cultures that uh, that have actual anthropomorphic manifestations of their gods, they have just more of a physical mindset, and whereas uh, an yeah. uh, an iconic traditions have more of a spiritual mindset." Like it, that's just such a broad statement to make uh, that it 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 runs a high risk of just being. Uh, you know, completely untrue on both sides. You know, you're just uh, it, everything is going to be a lot more nuanced than that. And also, as we'll discuss, you can't really talk about like, okay, this religion is is an iconic, and this one is iconic, because generally you're going to see both trends in any given religion over the course of of its of its lifetime. That's exactly right. And, as, you know, as we've already seen, there are clearly, you know, there are both kinds within Greco-Roman religion. You know, you yeah. have an iconic Greco-Roman religion and you have highly iconic Greco-Roman religion uh, existing side by side, even at the same time. And uh, and that's true of many. I think we're going to look at some of the spectrum in uh, some of this uh, worship in India and uh, think you'll, you'll even see these same contrast within uh, within similar branches of Christianity, more aniconic sort of uh, forms of Christian worship versus more iconic ones. Yeah, yeah. Because again, that's what's so interesting about the sky god thing is because uh, in in most like Protestant churches, you have a, a you know, or at least the the one I grew up in, it, it's very uh, aniconic inside. 
you know, and for the most part, there's a there's a large uh, uh, shift in uh, a large trend in an iconism in there. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's from elsewhere. It's from like the, the, the broader culture that you end up getting these iconic emblems of the Sky Daddy. Now, to the point of the difficulty in defining these terms and all the interesting questions that raises, uh, Gaifman sort of conducts a review in this essay about the many different ways that the terms aniconic and aniconism have been used in the history of religious studies. Uh, She notes that one of the earliest instances, at least in the modern world, of these terms comes from the German archaeologist Johannes Adolf Overbeck, who lived 1826 to 1895, who coined these terms, uh, I think he was writing in German, so it was aniconisch and aniconismus, and I guess those would be based on uh, uh, Greek formulations, but not terms that the ancient Greeks would have actually used to in the same way that they're being used here. But uh, she says that Overbeck was trying to promote a particular perception of the earliest history of Greek art. So Overbeck had a speculative interpretation of what the prehistory of Greek art and Greek religion looked like. And in trying to describe that speculative interpretation, he used these terms. And his idea was that in prehistoric antiquity, the Greeks believed their gods did not have human forms and could not be represented anthropomorphically. And so as a result, they were not depicted directly, but rather indicated by mediating symbols, including trees, stones, pillars, spears, and scepters. Now, not to say that uh, Overbeck was necessarily correct about that, but that was the idea that he was trying to illustrate with this term. And I think this would be somewhat analogous to how you can't really like show a picture of a person to represent an abstract concept today, for example, a nation. So you might instead represent it symbolically with a flag. Mm-hmm. And Gaifman cites other uh, or much earlier uses of these words, not so much in religious studies, but uh, for example, she cites the early Christian theologian Clement of Alexandria, who's you know considered one of the earliest known Christian church fathers. And and uh, in Clement's writings, he uses an, an ancient ancestor of the term aniconic, but with a different meaning, the Greek word anikiston, uh, which means basically not representable. It, it's a word that mean, would mean something in English kind of like undrawable or unrepresentable. And St. Clement is saying there that it is impossible to indicate the nature of the divine in a representative form. He's essentially just saying, like, there's no way to draw God. You can't do it. Uh, I, I want to drive home something here that uh, well, uh, perhaps uh, elaborating something I said earlier, like I, thought, I asked a question regarding the, the cone um, of Aphrodite, you know, asking, well, is this all they had? Uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to imply that that is a question of, is this all they could do? Uh, because as we've discussed on the show before, the, the creation of anthropomorphic um, art of creating human and animal likenesses and combinations of the two. These are very ancient trends in, uh, in, in, in human culture, in our, in, our, in our crafting of our environment. So if, if one is creating something that is abstract, that does not embody some version of the human form or an animal form, like that is a, that is a deliberate choice. It's not a situation of someone of a culture being like, well, we'd love to be able to draw the, uh, the lion man god, but we just don't have the technology yet, so we're going to mm-hmm. use a square. That's not how it works. Oh yeah, I mean both uh, both iconic and aniconic religious imageries appear to go way back into you know yeah. deep prehistory. So both of these traditions are, are, have long been present, and um, and I could imagine a scenario where, where, say for example, if you a, a cult a local cult might say like, well, we can't afford to pay an artisan to create this kind of statue. 
but mm-hmm. we have this other kind of statue. But uh, but you definitely want to don't want to jump from that possibility to thinking that the uh, that an iconic versus iconic religion that one is in any way superior to the other because it's actually right. been written about both ways. Like some scholars have written about an iconic religions with the kind of. Um, a kind of uh, preferential bias toward them, like, oh, they're more spiritually pure because they don't have to, you know, represent things figurally. Um, and obviously that's not true. But you also don't want to think, like, iconic representation of gods is superior because, I don't know, it it, it takes more artistic skill or something like that, mm-hmm. which it doesn't even necessarily. Right. So, yeah, we're, we're not going to be pursuing an idea that one is in any way better than the other. Uh, but coming back to the history of the definitions of aniconicity, um, so uh, Gaifman cites a few other ideas uh, to, to illustrate some of the problems here. One is that there was a definition in the 1980s by a scholar named Burkhard Gladigau who defined aniconic cults as cults in which, quote, no images are known or accepted as objects of worship, especially not in the form of anthropomorphic images. And this this uh, this one comes in for some criticism here because it, it complicates things by saying, like, no images. So, you know, that's mm-hmm. one problem. Like, is the cone at Paphos, at the Paphos shrine, not an image? I mean, it is an image. It's not but it's not a figural representation of a goddess with like a human or animal body form. So it's not anthropomorphic, but it is an image. So this definition might seem to conflict with some other uses. And also it uh, specifically specifies objects of worship, which, you know, you could get into complications there. In fact, I'll, I'll talk about the complication there in a second. There's another definition that was refined by a scholar named Mettinger in the 1990s to argue that aniconism should refer to cults where, quote, there is no iconic representation of the deity, either anthropomorphic or theriomorphic, which means in animal form. Uh, serving as the dominant or central cultic symbol. But here it would mean that for a cult to be aniconic, if there is a central cultic symbol, that's the terminology, it can't take human or animal form. And these definitions are also complicated by what object or symbol you're actually talking about. What, what actually counts as a central cultic symbol or an object of worship uh, like there are a lot of religious symbols that I think would be difficult to figure out whether they fit in those categories or not. If you think about a Catholic church, is, is the crucifix an object of worship or a central cultic symbol? I think you would get people arguing both for and against those propositions. Yeah, and and one reality that we'll touch on again later too is is it yeah these de- these uh these framings uh, these definitions they often depend on insider versus outsider. Um, analysis, you know. Yes. Uh, so somebody within, uh, say, like the Catholic Church would probably say, oh, well, of course we don't worship the crucifix. It's just this symbol, uh, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Whereas someone outside might say, whoa, look at this crucifix. Clearly they're worshiping this. And you see, and you also see like more, um, I guess, sharpened analysis too sometimes where, uh, you, know, uh, you know, depending on, um, you know, which group is judging the other. Yeah, once again, I mean, this is an area where uh, writing about the artistic representations of various religions, uh, especially if you go further back into history, you will sometimes come across analysis that seems sort of uh, biased or judgmental. You know, it's almost like this is why this religion's uh, art is is not as good as, I don't know, my my Christian uh, uh, denomination's art or something like that. Obviously, we want to be careful not to uh, not to fall into those traps. Plus, I think it's 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 pretty safe to say any human's relationship with a 
with a deity, with a divine concept, with the idea of a god. It's going to be complex. It's going to be uh, it's going to be the kind of thing where you can have multiple, even conflicting ideas at once in your head. Kind of like mm-hmm. how we were talking earlier about how you can think about God in a say a, you know a Christian sense, and you're you're at once you're imagining like uh, the symbol of light coming out of a cloud you know, that mm-hmm. you might be presented with. You're you're also imagining the burning bush. You're also imagining uh, the, the the sky daddy or sky granddad Zeus uh, form of God. Like all these things Big can old sort beard. of yeah. yeah yeah they can all sort of compete for your attention at the same time. And there may be the one that you were leaning into when you were engaging in worship, and then there might be the gut instinct image as well. And so you can have all of these. I mean, we've we've talked about this in terms of, say, ideas and concepts of the afterlife before, like how, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, any given person within a faith, they may, uh, you know, they may have have like three or four different ideas of what happens when you die. Some of them Mm -hmm. are grounded in like the scripture of a given faith or the doctrine of a given faith. And others are just like purely based on movies you've seen, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. So the final definition of, of aniconism that Gaifman lands on, I think, is a really good one. She argues this is the better idea, and it comes from a scholar named Alfred Gell. And it is the, the term here for what you would be talking about when you're arguing whether something's iconic or aniconic is uh, something that is an index of divine presence. Uh, the index of divine presence of in, is any marker that, quote, indicates to the worshiper that a divine power is present at a particular site, at least potentially. And I, I like this definition because it doesn't necessarily require that, that the object is the, the thing that you're worshiping, but it's a marker that shows you this place is sacred and reminds you of the divine power here. So finally, she says, quote, I propose to deploy an iconic to describe a physical object, monument, image or visual scheme that denotes the presence of a divine power without a figural representation of the deity or deities involved. Similarly, an iconism can be defined as the denotation of divine presence without a figural image in both religious practice and in imagery and visual culture more broadly. So it's a non-figural index of divine presence. It shows you there is the the divine presence here, uh, reminds you of it. It says, you know, this is a place where you can be reminded of uh, God or the gods or whatever the divine presence is, but it doesn't have a body. It's not like a human or like an animal form. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's this specific religious definition, but obviously it's also important to keep in mind dis- some other distinctions, such as the distinction between aniconism in religion and just general non-figurative art, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other thing would be um, the difference between aniconism, as we've been talking about it here, which just means any kind of religious uh, uh, index of divine presence that does not include figural representation versus what might be called anti-iconism, or even in some cases iconoclasm, the explicit uh, prohibition against or condemnation of various kinds of figural representation in a religious context. Aniconism is not necessarily anti-iconism. It can right. be in some cases, but it, it, it doesn't necessitate it. Yeah, and, and we'll come back. I think we'll get more into to, um, uh, iconoclasm in the the second episode but but I do want to touch a little bit more about the idea of idols uh, and icons. Uh, some of the key examples of an iconism, uh, they, they stem from the uh, the Abrahamic religions. So, uh, so there are key injunctions against the creation of idols in Judaism, and uh, it also follows in Christianity. Uh, the, one of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Right. Uh, the, it's the second commandment. And that... Yeah. Uh, 
that it's I remember that was one that I didn't fully understand when I was a kid. But I think uh, that is broadly taken as, uh, you know, it's interpreted actually in a lot of different ways in terms of how far that commandment goes, what all it applies to. But in general, it is taken as some form of commandment against the creation of idols. Well, I, I remember I had this, uh, I think I've mentioned this before. I, I wish I could I have to hunt up a copy of it. I had this like book of Bible stories and it had uh-huh. illustrations in it. And so the way that tended to explain this to me was just that, okay, you have these scenes where, you know, God is speaking abstractly, like through the burning bush. That's clearly a Bible story that's illustrated in there. But then it also illustrates the various stories that involve the idols of rival religions. Oh, and yeah. in those, the, the uh, you know, the idols often took on this kind of spooky or sinister quality, you know, mm-hmm. they were imposing and, and, you know, cool, but also kind of weird. And so uh, I think that's an area where we have to recognize that um, the term idol often carries a certain degree of negative connotation in some cultures due to uh, uh, an uh, aniconic tendencies. But the base, but really the basic idea of a cult image, a human created object that is venerated for the deity and the place of the de- deity, you know, this again is quite old and it is not universally viewed as negative. Uh, so I think it's, it's important that we be able to sort of step back uh, from that sort of some of this uh, often sort of childhood indoctrination about, uh, about idols. Uh, and there's also a great deal of back and forth about, again, what constitutes an idol in the same way we're talking about, you know, what is an icon and what isn't an icon. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if, if we keep using the words idol or icon in these episodes, remember not to uh, not to automatically apply a kind of stink to it. Right. <laughs> now, uh, we'll we'll get more into Islam in the second episode. But, of course, uh, an iconism is also an important aspect of Islam. And one of the reasons you see so much geometry and abstraction in Islamic art, though this doesn't mean that there are no depictions of lifelike figures in the history of Islamic art. And again, we'll get more into that into the, in the second episode. Now, there are all kinds of interesting questions to ask here. Uh, one of them that in many cases is difficult to answer, but it's interesting to think about is in anti-iconic and even anti-iconic religions, why the lack of the icon? So a, a few examples. Is it, as uh, Clement said earlier, that it's impossible to represent God in human form or even impossible to represent God visually at all, meaning that icons would just necessarily be incorrect and futile? Or is it more a matter of manners and respect, as in whether or not you could potentially represent the divine, it would be inappropriate for a human artist to do so? You know, the interpretation that icons would somehow be disrespectful. Or could it be more about the impact of the icon on the beholder? Is, you know, is there a belief that somehow picturing the divine presence in a human or animal form would give you the wrong kind of religious experience? Is it about the person worshiping? Um, or sometimes is it just a matter of, um, of, of like local convenience of like, you know, what kind of, uh, of icon is convenient for you to have at a particular place in time? Maybe it is actually not a figurative icon. So I, I started thinking about all this as a, as a potential episode for a couple of reasons. So first of all, I was, I was reading about undeciphered writing systems. And so I was mm. thinking about the power of words and symbols and, you know, and, and what happens if, if you can't uh, actually decipher uh, ancient examples of this. 
And then I was uh, I was revisiting the writings of um, a spiritual teacher, Eckhart Tolle, uh, from uh, his book, The Power of Now. And I was reminded of this passage, uh, which I'm going to read. Uh, quote, even a stone and more easily a flower or a bird could show you the way back to God, to the source, to yourself. When you look at it or hold it and let it be without imposing a word of mental label on it, a sense of awe or wonder arises within you. Its essence silently communicates itself to you and reflects your own essence back to you. Now, this got me thinking about the rather complex web of language and images that we attach to virtually everything in life. Like, I think one of the things that's that's neat about uh, about Tolle's uh, uh, advice there is that, yeah, when when you think about things like a flower or a bird, there's just so many connections your mind makes, like things that the bird or the flower are used to represent, like sometimes symbolically, other times metaphorically. Um, and those are going to connect to various uh, fears and anxieties in your life, you know, and to where it makes it. But then at the base, like, why are you why are we dragging all of that in? If I'm looking at a bird, if I'm looking at a flower. And so if you can if you can just focus on the actual objective reality, the actual sensory information, uh, without dragging all of these associations into it, you can, at least, you know, some people uh, have, have expressed this, uh, in this feeling of peace that emerges from that experience. Okay. And it, this also brought to mind a quote from Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, this part, uh, Joe, but uh, Brother William says, quote, The order that our mind imagines is like a net or like a ladder built to attain something. But afterward, you must throw the ladder away because you discover that even if it was useful, it was meaningless. And uh, I should point out that in this, uh, Brother William is is cited. Basically, this quote is a medievalized quote of the Austrian philosopher Ludwig uh, Wittgenstein, known as Wittgenstein's Ladder. So it is not a medieval concept exactly, but he has uh, Umberto Eco has taken it and made it medieval so that it may come out of Brother William's mouth in this tale. Hmm. Okay. So uh, how does this connect to aniconism for you? Okay. So I mean, it's not a one to one, obviously, because. Um, you know, and iconism is generally more about visual representations and art, um, though the use of descriptions also becomes important in some traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the quotes I mentioned are, you know, generally concerned with the, the with aspects of objective reality. Again, birds, flowers, stones, etc. Things where you can you can behold them and see the thing itself mm-hmm. uh, and strip away, potentially strip away all of these associations. But you know, what happens when we consider supernatural entities and deities, saints and prophets or, you know, divine places as well? Um, because I, I think we you know, can generally agree if we're talking about a god, we're talking about something that does not have an objective reality. It has a subjective reality, you know, um, though, though I guess in general there, there are basically three ways you might approach the concept of a god. Um, so either our words and images are describing something that does have a reality. You know, you're going with the idea that, oh, that, that God or gods, they have an objective reality and our words and images are describing something, uh, that actually exists. Mm-hmm. The, another way of looking at it would be all of our words and images are describing something that exists purely in the domain of myth. Uh, so it is, you know, it's, in, it's entirely dependent upon these various uh, depictions, but it has its own important reality as well. Uh, but then you could say that you could also look at it and say, well, our words and images are describing or embellishing some feeling or array of feelings or experiences that do have a reality. Um, so 
you know, I was thinking like if I was to if I was asked, draw a picture of your hunger and I drew a picture of like an angry faced goblin, you know, like <laughs> mm-hmm. that is that is serving as a like a you could almost you know lean into that and say like this is this god represents my hunger you know so it's a it represents something that has an objective or at least subjective reality within me uh but it is it is not based on an actual creature or sentient uh existence somewhere oh yeah i see what you i think i see what you're saying so it is interesting how in all of our human attempts to represent ideas like gods there's this constant process of uh, bouncing back and forth between uh, some kind of vague sense of meaning that we feel internally, subjectively, and then some external representation. Um, right. And so, like, the, uh, the, the maybe the way a god is depicted, whether figurally or non-figurally, represents something people feel, some association they have with the presence of this god or the idea of this god. But then, of course, once it is depicted, that feeds back into how people think about the god. And so it creates this feedback loop. Yeah, and it can create all sorts of opportunities, but also all sorts of challenges mm-hmm. and, and outright problems in the depictions of gods and key uh, uh, religious figures. Like, I, you know, I, I, my mind instantly goes to the various depictions of, um, of Jesus that you see in Christian traditions, mm-hmm. because you really see, you see so many different versions. You see, yeah. you know, depictions of, of, of Jesus as a, as a Middle Eastern individual. You see depictions of, of Jesus in which Jesus um, has African features, in which he has highly Caucasian features, in which he has Asian features. You see depictions of, of Christ, uh, particularly there's some interesting medieval trends where, that lean into the, the feminine nature of Christ and depict mm-hmm. a very feminine uh, Christ, which uh, I, I think has and certainly had to the people who leaned uh, towards that interpretation, very positive um, ramifications for the way they beheld the divine. But clearly for others, it was a problem uh, and, and they, they, they took issue with it. Uh, there are also monstrous depictions of Christ where, you know, people uh, where and especially in the medieval period, they leaned into trying to use uh, fantastic variations on Christ's form in order to try to relay information about theological concepts like, uh, you know, the Trinity by showing uh, Jesus with three heads or three faces. Or there was one, I think uh, Jesus had like a, a bird's neck or a bird's beak, and it had to do with this saying about um, about the, the time it takes words leaving your heart to reach your mouth and how, um, you know, Christ would be very um, patient in the way that he would express himself. And therefore, he has this like long, uh, long neck and bird head, uh, stuff like that. And then he also today, I mean, on the other side of the, the feminine Christ, you also will find just at times just laughably masculine uh, Jesuses, you know, where it's like he's just tremendously ripped, like the, like the, like the cross of the crucifixion is some sort of uh, uh, exercise machine. Uh-huh. Sorry, I was thinking about a specific example that uh, came to mind when you were talking about images of Christ from the Middle Ages that could look uh, monstrous, if, if certainly if viewed from the outside without the you know the interpretation, uh, mm-hmm. like when they're supposed to represent a theological concept. And uh, I was thinking about uh, Christ Pantocrator. Do you know this one? The one? Oh, where... I don't think I do offhand. Maybe I would recognize it if I saw it. Uh, you, I think you would, because th- these tend to be the images where not always, but in in some depictions. Christ is shown as having a sort of divided face where one side of the face 
looks different than the other side of the face. Like one side of the face, uh, the eye looks different than on the other side. And I think yes. this is sometimes interpreted to um, to represent God in, in both of his forms. Like it represents a theological concept that God, you know, may be uh, both fully human and fully divine at the same time. And that's shown by giving him, you know, two different faces smashed together that look like they're drawn uh, by two different artists. Yeah, it's almost like uh, Christ is uh, is using his Instagram filter for half of the photo, and then the mm-hmm. other half is just uh, you know all natural. Yeah, uh, I think the, the specific example I'm thinking of, where the face is divided like that, is the Christ Pantocrator at the uh, at St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai Peninsula. Yes, I think that's that looks to be what I'm looking at right now. And yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting image, especially. Uh, I, I wonder what it would be like to look at it if you did not know what was going on there. You know. Yeah, uh, you know why there appears to be like it's. I want to be clear; it's not like a straight up Batman's two face scenario. Like you could easily look at this image of Christ and miss what was going on there. Yeah. So I guess what one of the things I'm trying to to say here is that yeah, anytime you depict uh, a god or a goddess or you know anything from a, a pantheon like this, anytime you depict them as a human being, as you depict them physically, uh, you lean into an anthropomorphic. Um, vision of what they are like there's just so many there's so much stuff that you end up drawing in there's so much human body language and and uh, physicality there are various uh, you know cultural associations um you know etc like it, there's there's so many ways that you can get it right and get it wrong that you can convey very specific uh, meanings uh some complex theological uh problems while you could also potentially create new theological problems <laughs> um you can create heresies uh, in the eyes of others, etc. Now, in exploring this topic, one can, of course, drift towards the absolutes, traditions that are very strict um, in um, an iconism and those that don't seem particularly concerned with it. But uh, uh, ultimately, I I thought it might be more illuminating to at least first consider a case where both seem to be employed. So uh, we're going to turn to another 2017 paper from that, that same uh, publication. Uh, this is by David L. Uh, Haberman, titled Drawing Out the Iconic in the Aniconic, Worship of Neem Trees and Govardhan Stones in Northern India, published in the journal Religion. Hmm. So Haberman uh, is a professor of religious studies at uh, Indiana University Bloomington and has long been fascinated by Hindu worshipful interaction. Uh, as he calls it. And an area of particular interest for him is worship involving aniconic objects, specifically trees uh, in northern India. He even wrote a whole book on this particular topic in 2013 titled People Trees, Worship of Trees in Northern India. Okay, so this would be an example of worship of trees that aren't just being uh, worshipped as trees, but in some sense stand in for the power of a particular god. Right. And in this article, yeah, he points to the worship of trees, mountains, and rivers as aniconic objects of devotion. Neem trees in particular are considered to be the embodiment of the goddess Sitala, while the stones of Mount uh, Govardhan are the embodiment of Krishna. Now, this is, of course, uh, particularly interesting because both of these deities certainly have have described and depicted forms, anthropomorphic forms, in Hindu traditions. Uh, Krishna, of course, is a major deity, the eighth avatar of Vishnu, an important figure in uh, the Mahabharata, and often described as a blue-skinned humanoid, sometimes depicted as a child even, uh, often shown with a flute. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Sitala is uh, an incarnation of Pavati, a curer of diseases, often depicted as a maiden riding a donkey with a broom to cleanse away the germs and a pot uh, full of uh, pulses and cold water to also help in the, in, in the curing of diseases. Mm. So Hindu iconography, of course, is very rich, very detailed, highly symbolic, and also highly anthropomorphic, or at least that's where I think a lot of our minds tend to go. Uh, you know, we think of these very ornate uh, depictions of the divine in which there are a lot of symbols, a lot of, uh, you know, there are multiple arms in many cases holding multiple objects, and they all mean something. Uh, likewise, there may be a vessel, a vehicle that they're riding on, you know, and that also has meaning. And so, like, the whole image is it's conveying a lot of information. It's not just mere, uh, you know, it's not just merely a fantastic otherworldly representation, though I guess there's an aspect of it as well, but there's a lot of information in the image. Yeah, they, they, I would agree with that. They often feel uh, highly informative, even sometimes maybe kind of busy. Yeah, but the uh, the specifics that uh, that Haberman gets into are fascinating here because he points out that in Banaras, on the banks of the Ganges in northern India, you can find people worshipping Sitala both in anthropomorphic or iconic form and engaging in an iconic worship of the tree as a focus, that neem tree that we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And he describes conversations with devotees here and points out that both are considered important forms of the goddess. Um, and so this this was a, one of the things that was really I really liked about this particular particular paper because it was um, a lot of there were a lot of like interview uh, uh, fragments in there where he's quoting people that he talked to about it, like asking them, well, how do you relate to the to the god or goddess in this form versus this other form or both? Mm-hmm. So. He, just, he, uh, he ultimately touches on these two concepts. Uh, one is uh, Murtarupa and the other is uh, Praktarupa. And the, uh, the Murtarupa, as he describes, is, quote, the embodied form of divinity that has been ritually installed in the shrine. So it's anthropomorphic, shaped, like, uh, shaped by human hands, and priests have also invited the divine into it via specific rituals that establish the life uh, breath inside of the statue or the form. But then the, um, the Proctory Rupa, however, is the natural form of divinity that appears without the aid of any human intervention. So the idea is, yes, the, the God can be found, say, in this tree or this mountain, uh, but it is there already naturally. Whereas in the, in the icon, we have to have somebody create it, and then it has, to be, uh, it has to be made sacred through the intervention of humans, by the intervention of priests. This is the picturing of God almost as a kind of uh, liquid substance in a way that can that can pour into different kinds of vessels and some in the natural world in which the God is poured into already and there are others in which the God can can pour in once it's been prepared and sanctified. Yeah. So uh, the devotees here that he talked to, he writes, they pointed to, say, the tree, for example, as the prior and most important form. Of the God now, and again, these are just individuals he talked to. This doesn't mean like this is not like a necessarily a universal opinion on the matter. But mm-hmm. uh, they were telling him that yeah, it existed before the temple, before human-made images came along. But it doesn't seem to be an either-or scenario. You can get, engage with these deities in both ways. You can choose to go iconic or aniconic, like depending on you know which route you want to take personally. And he writes that there does seem to be a strong preference among some um, uh, Hindus for the natural forms. And a lot of this comes down 
he writes, to the multiple or even innumerable forms of Hindu deities. So Krishna, for instance, I mentioned, you know, that sometimes he's depicted as a, as a baby. Uh, you see this kind of like toddler Krishna who is, uh, is kind of mischievous. And mm-hmm. then you see the adult uh, Krishna. But even the adult Krishna, depending on how he's depicted, he might, might be depicted as more of a philosopher. He might be depicted as a strategist or a warrior. Um, but as Haberman points out, this means that the fixed form of the handcrafted icon limits you to the form it presents, while the aniconic form uh, allows you to engage which, with whichever version of that God you want to align with, like which form suits you best in general or at a given moment. That's interesting. I did not think about that. Uh, but yeah, now that seems obvious in retrospect that the the aniconic representation of a god would seem to give the god more power to realize different forms. It makes the god more conceptually protean that, you know, can, can be a shapeshifter of sorts. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, I think it, it touches on like some of these ideas I was expressing earlier about how any version, any depiction of a, of a god or a divine being or an important religious figure, like you're going to draw in all of these associations. Mm-hmm. And, and wh- the one that is attractive to this person may not be attractive to this person. The one, the, 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 like the version of Krishna that is important to you in the morning might not be the one that you need in the evening, uh, that sort of thing. That seems to be the, the point of what he's, he's saying here. Oh, and by the way, with uh, in particular, when we're talking about Krishna, um, it's the uh, – so there's this, this mountain, Mount uh, uh, Govardhan, and this mountain itself may be seen as um, an aniconic focus, but also there's a tradition of using stones from the mountain, Giriraj stones. And uh, and I'll I'll get into a little bit of the details about how uh, some people interact with these stones here in just a minute. But let's turn back to the the neem trees. Um, so Haberman points out that this is just one of several key sacred Hindu trees. Uh, and there are sacred trees in most cultures, and some scholars think that tree worship might well be one of the most archaic forms of worship. Uh, mm-hmm. There are important symbols uh, that are trees found in Buddhism uh, as well, and um, and and they and even in Buddhism they also have often take on this uh, aniconic uh, focus as well. But the neem tree in particular is long lived; it has medicinal uses, and they were uh, the you know stuff from the neem tree was used uh, in treatments for pox. Uh, and also they are incarnations of Sitalia. And he writes that some sacred trees are said to take on darker qualities at night, um, which reminds me a little bit uh, of our discussions of, of beans, you know, uh, the idea oh. that at, at night maybe some sacred trees are not safe to be around. But he stresses that that's not the case with the neem. The neem is sacred and positive all of the time. It's the sort of sacred tree that you would want in your yard you would want it as a kind of protector for you and your family. And this is interesting. Worshippers don't tend to worship all the neem trees. So it's not a matter of like that neem tree and that neem tree and this one and the one down the road and the one uh, uptown, but rather one or two that they've forged a relationship with. Now, as for the stones of Mount uh, uh, Godvarden, Haberman points to an account in the um, the Bhagavita Purana in which uh, Krishna takes on two forms at once, both as a boy lifting up the mountain and the mountain itself. And the mountain, again, is sacred. The mountain is Krishna. The sacred stones of the mountain are Krishna. So you might engage with Krishna or the idea of Krishna through the contemplation of the mountain itself, but 
uh, as Haberman points out, that's kind of it's a big mountain. You can't that might be a little challenging to really like take it all in. So you have this particular stone from it that you forged a bond with. And this is important. Like this is your stone, but it is also Krishna. So you have ownership of it, but it itself is also the divine. And so, you know, it's, it's uh, on one level, you know, we reached the point here where we're thinking of like, okay, I can see where the, like the stone is, is an aniconic version of Krishna. I can look at it and I can, I can imagine these various anthropomorphic ideas of Krishna, but it itself is not anthropomorphic. Mm-hmm. But there's also what Haberman calls the, quote, intentional anthropomorphism of all of this. And, and this seems to be quite literal, not merely leaning into the human-like qualities of the stone, but actually adding, quote, eyes, ornaments, clothing, and sometimes even arms to the Giraj stones. The process is, uh, is said to give form to the formless, to imbue personality, and above all, allow for the growth of relationship, to strengthen this bond between the worshiper and uh, this um, this item that is aiding them in their worship. So I think this is a great example of how the um, the iconic versus aniconic categories are not always cleanly separated, and they form a kind of spectrum where each tradition can easily blend into the other one. So he, here it sounds like you've got something that begins as an, a classical aniconic index of, of divine presence. It's a object from the natural world that doesn't really take a human or animal form, but just indicates to the believer that somehow the divine is present when you are in the company of this object. But then you can start dressing it up in increasingly anthropomorphic ways. Right. Yeah. And if, if anyone wants to look up a, an example of this. Uh, the Giraj stones, uh, the way that it's spelled in this article, is G-I-R-I-R-A-J. And yeah, there's, uh, there, it's, it's beautiful, uh, the examples I was looking at uh, in, in the uh, photos provided with this, uh, this paper, uh, because there's, it's, not, it's not like full-on anthropomorphic. It's um, like, like I don't want to overstate it. Like it mm-hmm. doesn't look like a little person, uh, but like you can certainly still see the formless in the form, if you know what I mean. You know, it's like, it's not like a straight up Mr. Potato Head or something. And actually, there's documentation of not just the stones, but the same thing happening with the neem trees, right? Right. Uh, and with the neem trees, this uh, same practice takes the form of first wrapping the trees with fabric and then eventually attaching a face mask of the goddess to the tree as well. And again, this is, these are quite, quite beautiful. You can look up examples of, of this. But one of the, the interesting things with this is that uh, he points out that there's a process with the neem tree. So you don't just add all of these things at once. You kind of, you, you start with the, the bear tree and then you begin to add the wrap and eventually the face. So again, Haberman writes that this anthropomorphism, it serves to intensify the personal connection with the god or goddess. It brings the worshiper closer. And it's also said to draw the deity out of the stone, or in this case, the tree, more as well, which I, I find quite interesting. And he, he uh, from here, he goes on to discuss just the idea of anthropomorphism in general. And he argues that, that these examples should force us to reconsider anthropomorphism to a certain extent, because especially in, in the modern world and in the Western world, there are a lot of negative connotations that are, that are thrown at anthropomorphism, especially in the sciences. And, and we've discussed this as well. Like there's, oh, yeah. there's this, um, you know, you shouldn't anthropomorphize everything, especially if it's a study. You don't want to anthropomorphize your, say, uh, experimental rodents. 
Right. Uh, that anthropomorphism in the context of the sciences usually is is a pejorative because it means you are making unjustified assumptions. You are assuming human-like qualities of, say, an animal or something like that when those aren't necessarily actually there. Yeah. And, and even in the arts, too, you see this trend. Um, uh, Joe, I, I, I assume you encountered this as well in like creative writing courses and all. Um, I remember I had a creative writing uh, professor who who, uh, who who talked about um, uh, student writers anthropomorphizing like mad gods, <laughs> which I, I have always uh, stuck to. I think I know what you mean, but do, do you have like an example in mind? Like. Um, just in the way you describe everything, like if you're setting uh-huh. the scene where like, instead of saying, uh, you know, it was it was a dark and stormy night, you might just go overboard and say like the, uh, you know, like the storm clouds were battering and assaulting the castle. Yeah, um, the clouds were angry. Yeah, yeah the clouds were angry, etc. And if you, you know, it's one of those things where I get, it's like spices and something, right? And certainly yeah. you, you can overdo it. And uh, and uh, and I think that's what my my teacher was uh, was criticizing in that case. Yeah, I know what you mean now. I think it's especially true of a lot of uh, like younger writers who are trying to find ways to write expressively. One of the easiest ways to do that is to uh, imbue non-human objects with human characteristics. It, that's just like one of the easiest places to go to if you're trying to find a way to say something in a creative way. Right. But then, yeah, ultimately it ends up overbalanced, and that's ultimately not how we interact with the world usually, though – as we'll get to, I mean, anthropomorphism is something that our brain easily does. So uh, a, a case can also be made that we, we do live in a highly anthropomorphic world. Um, in, in this paper, though, um, Haberman points to 18th century philosopher David Hume, who argued that anthropomorphism was a cognitive strategy for coping with insecurity about the world and that it was an aspect of, quote, vulgar religion and ignorance. And these mm-hmm. attitudes also influenced uh, Edward B. Tyler, who was regarded as the founding father of anthropology, who also had a negative view of the anthropomorphism of non-living things. Yeah. So for a while, anthropomorphism was just looked down upon almost as a kind of, of insult to human personhood at times. Like, you know, we're the only, well, we're the only persons that, you know, don't, don't turn everything else into a person as well. It, it reduces what we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Haberman points out that the, the more we learn about, say, facial recognition in the human brain and its role and how we function, that this casts a different light on anthropomorphism, especially the sort of anthropomorphism on display in um, the prior examples here. Uh, he charges, quote, anthropomorphism creates an empathetic connection with non-human agents. So what's wrong with this if it benefits the human involved, right? Uh, and, and Haberman argues, you know, what's wrong with it if it benefits some targets of anthropomorphism as well, uh, such as Mother Earth and environmental campaigns, you know, the mm. idea that, well, you know, maybe somebody doesn't uh, care as much about about helping out the environment if they're thinking about it as just place and setting and, you know, this, this, this unpersoned world we live in. But if you start calling it mother nature, if you start sort of dragging the, uh, the you know, basically the rough idea of the goddess into it, then, uh, then th- it makes people maybe care a little bit more because you're not just hurting uh, the planet, you're hurting a person, you're hurting an individual. I can totally see that, but I can also actually see the exact reverse where, you know, you've probably heard people say things anthropomorphizing nature uh, in a way that's like, oh, we don't need to worry. You know, Mother Nature can take care of herself. You know, we we don't need to. It doesn't matter what we do. She'll take care of herself. (laughs) 
Right. And then, of course, also there are examples of people saying, oh, Mother Nature strikes back, you know, the wrath of Mother Nature. (laughs) And I don't know, I guess you could you could probably make a case for their situations like that where you start talking about things as just an act of God as opposed to an act of environment or, uh, you know, a, a part of, say, inv- um, uh, you know, chi- climate change, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You, you can sort of take human responsibility out of the scenario by saying, well, clearly the gods are at it again. What can you do? Yeah. So in closing, Haberman writes, quote, with regard to the cases under consideration, the anthropomorphic adornment of a neem tree or a Gudvarin stone brings forth its divine personality. It is always there, but the ornamentation makes it more fully perceptible. The anthropomorphic appendages, then, are key to the development of a close relationship with divinity in these forms. And as we have seen, intimate uh, relationality is the very goal of the religion associated with Govardhan stones and certain trees. I conclude by hypothesizing, then, that the transformation of aniconic objects into anthropomorphic icons— what uh, Michael Actor calls anthropomorphic iconicity most commonly occurs and in increasing degrees in a religious cultural context wherein relationality is highly valued. Now, obviously, this is, again, this is a particular case within a particular culture, and we do have to be careful about drawing, uh, you know, universal aspects of uh, uh, an iconism out of these examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think this is very interesting uh, to consider, you know, uh, the, the idea, this sort of interplay between um, the aniconic and the iconic and, and even engaging with, with concepts of deities by utilizing both of these. Yeah. yeah. And I do wonder, that does raise a good question. Like, yeah, is, um, would anthropomorphizing or iconic representations be more common uh, in religions or interpretations of religions that highly value the idea of a personal relationship with the God or an intimacy bet- between the believer and the God. Yeah. So I, I think this whole scenario, it does, it, it raises a number of questions, you know, like what happens when we give God a face? What happens when we, we work to prevent that face from manifesting or we limit or prohibit the ways in which that face is manifested. Uh, is there a tendency to give uh, God a face anyway, even if, uh, you know, through mental images, if visual images are prohibited? And, so what, and also, what sort of things can happen when someone else gives God a face for you? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, again, I, that comes to mind when I think about these various visual representations of Jesus that you see in different modes of Christianity. Like, mm-hmm. what happens when someone says, hey, here's your... Here's your big muscle, Jesus. Uh, you yeah. know, that, that may not be the version of, uh, of Jesus that really resonates with you the most. It might be a form that scares you a bit. And it's, it's you know, you get into a lot of these complications with specific imagery like that. I think some of the questions you just raised will really be illuminated by some uh, examples we look at in episode two. I I was going to talk in this episode about the concept of divine emptiness, but I think we need to call part one here and we can come back to that in the next episode. Now, in the meantime, uh, you know, obviously there's more that we want to unpack on this topic, but feel free to go ahead and write in with with your thoughts. Um, Sometimes those are 
Th- those are really um, interesting emails where they come in sort of halfway between a conversation. So sometimes you bring up something that we're going to get to in the next episode, um, uh, but sometimes not. So, you know, it's, uh, it's always great to hear from our listeners. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe if the platform allows you to do so. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.